Welcome everyone to another episode of Congress Two Beers In. I'm Senior Fellow Laura Blessing from the Government Affairs Institute and um, myself and my colleague Josh Huter are delighted to have Matt Green on the podcast with us. Um, so Matt is a professor and chair of Catholic University's Department of Politics. Uh, he's an expert in Congress, political leadership, politics and history. And some of his previous books include uh, legislative hardball on the House Freedom Caucus, as well as choosing the leader on leadership races in the House of Representatives, um, both of which are actually published in 2019, just in case I, I needed any more of a reminder of <laughs> how much faster I should be writing. <laughs> um, so we're here to talk to Matt today about uh, his new book, Newt Gingrich, The Rise and Fall of a Party Entrepreneur, uh, that just came out with Jeff Crouch. Um, and, you know, uh, I should also mention that he is now one of, I believe, only two academics to be on our podcast twice. So I, th I think you're joining the, the, the Binder group, the Binder Collective. It's now you and Sarah. So oh, I think Molly's been on a couple of times, too. Oh, crap. Maybe Walner as well. OK. But yeah, it's a select group. It's a small, select group. Small, small, small group. group. Um, but over a long introduction, a warm welcome to you, Matt. Thank you very much, and it's an honor to be joining the the Reynolds Binder um, Collective. <laughs> very much, good collective to be in. Um, so I, I was, uh, you know, this is a really, uh, you know, engaging book about a you know, really important uh, and transformational figure. And you know, one of the, the, you know, the fun things for me is that there are a lot of archival sources in here, and you know, one of the things that that I, I love that's rare, if not unique to Gingrich is that he and his papers are very revealing of their strategy. Like that he wants to tell you everything, um, you know, in, in, in the grandest terms. Um, he kind of feels like a Bond villain, honestly, in that, in that regard. Um, he, he wants to lay everything out for you. He wants to give you a lot of charts. Um, and I, I, I guess I was hoping that you could kind of kick us off with both how you see Gingrich and what, you know, as well as how he sees himself because you have a very particular lens that you're coming at this. Sure. So the argument that uh, Jeff and I make in the in the book is that it's useful to think about Gingrich as this um, kind of entrepreneur that we call a party entrepreneur. So there's been a, a good amount of research on entrepreneurs in Congress. Um, most of it is about either um, <clears throat> um, procedural entrepreneurs. So these are folks who are trying to change the rules and procedures of the legislature. Um, or uh, policy or legislative entrepreneurs. These are folks trying to get legislation enacted. And what those kinds of entrepreneurs share is a desire or a willingness to use their scarce resources to do things that don't necessarily help them with their primary objective of getting elected. Um, but by doing it, they may, of course, help themselves get elected, but they're doing a lot of other things that are important for how Congress functions. Gingrich, we argue, is, is a different kind of entrepreneur we call a party entrepreneur. So he's using, when he was in Congress, he was using his scarce resources to try to help his party. His primary uh, goal in that respect was to get his party, the Republican Party, a majority in the House of Representatives. They had lost the majority in 1952 in the House, of, in the House and they had not gained it since. So they were becoming this enduring minority, which was demoralizing and frustrating and obviously meant the party couldn't achieve any of its objectives. So Gingrich, from the moment he was elected to the House in 1978, was focused on um, getting his party into the majority. And um, so he was doing a lot of things that other members weren't doing. He's using a lot of his scarce time and energy to do this. Um, he wasn't the only one, but the degree to which he was doing it, the, ex the, the, the consistency with which he was doing it was quite remarkable, as well as some of the ways he thought that Republicans could become a majority, which I can talk about uh, later if you're interested. Um, I think that Gingrich saw himself as more than just someone helping his party, um, because one of his goals, in addition to getting a majority in the House, was a conservative transformation of society. It's a huge objective. It's a, it's a major goal. Um, <clears throat> and he saw this too as connected because if you have a conservative society, then you're gonna get a conservative party elected pretty durably. But um, to have like a, a societal revolution, a transformation, 
um, is something that is much more ambitious than almost any member of Congress is going to have. And I think that's kind of how Gingrich saw himself as not just a vanguard of the majority, but a vanguard of a change in society. As one of the, he saw himself as one of these major players or one of these major actors in American history or world history, really, that fundamentally change society at large. So, um, so I think that's what, you know, that's how we see Gingrich in terms of his congressional career. And I think that part of that helps us understand how he saw himself. Well, one of the things that's really interesting about Gingrich is he has given a extraordinarily amount of credit for what happened in the mid 1990s. I mean, he is a singular figure in congressional history. When we talk about the trajectory of the institution, when we talk about the trajectory of party politics, when we talk about the trajectory of civility within Congress and debate, I mean, like he is given credit for ruining a lot of things, right? Smashing a lot of things, changing the way that the House works and operates. Um, and my, I guess my, my big question is, is that sort of a myth that's been built up around him or how much does, how much does he deserve this sort of, um, this character of like, you know, world smasher slash changer of all legislative things? Um, do you think that's a little bit overplayed? So Jeff and I argue that there is, there is some exaggeration there. Um, <clears throat> we do give Gingrich credit for, uh, for a number of things, most of them within the House of Representatives. So for example, this idea that to win power or to win a majority, you have to be aggressive. You've got to differentiate the two parties. You should avoid compromise, um, at least some of the time. Those are things that Gingrich was talking about from the moment he was elected <laughs> to, to the House. And what he was doing, we argue, was uh, a combination of persuasion. So other Republicans getting more and more frustrated saying, you know what, maybe Gingrich has a point and recruitment. So he was getting new people elected who shared that view of politics from the get-go. Um, some of them might have been elected on their own, but he was also helping some of them financially and, and, and so forth. So one of the big ways that he changed Congress, we argue, is he, he convinced members that this was the best strategy. And when the 1994 election happened, Republicans said, oh, well, obviously we won power in the House. That's when they finally got a majority because of Gingrich. So we should continue this. And very, and most importantly, Democrats said, oh, that's how Republicans won a majority. So we need to do that as well. And so the 94 election becomes a kind of data point that's a lesson for folks, convincing anyone who is still skeptical otherwise that you've got to be assertive, aggressive, and partisan to win power. Um, there's other things that Gingrich did as well that have to do with the way that the House operates. There was, uh, after the 94 election, a major cut in staff, particularly committee staff, which was real, measurable, a result of Republicans taking control of the House and Gingrich in particular. And it's had a long-term uh, negative effect on how Congress operates, how the, the ability of staff to, of the House and its members to get information, to legislate well, et cetera. But there's a, there are a lot of other things that Gingrich is blamed for that I think you're right, Josh, uh, and we argue is way overblown. So take civility, for example. This is something you hear about a lot. I think Dana Milbank's latest book makes this argument. Oh, well, you know, look at Trump and how he talks about people, all the nasty rhetoric. That's Gingrich's fault. Um, it's, there's really very little evidence that one man changed the way we all talk about politics. Um, for one thing, that narrative misses the influence of folks like Rush Limbaugh, who had a much wider audience than Newt Gingrich did. And he was using a kind of, a, he was using aggressive rhetoric, more partisan, sometimes nasty rhetoric. Um, I would say not even as nasty as what we're getting now in social media, but those kinds of figures were outside of Congress and shaping our political rhetoric. Uh, and they had much greater, they had a much greater influence than Newt Gingrich. So you know, we're not we don't hold Gingrich blameless for some of the things that we see today in politics that are that are negative or problematic. But at the same time, we don't think he's the you know, should be used as a scapegoat for everything that everyone despises about American politics. That's one of the things that I, I absolutely love about your book in particular is like kind of pointing this out. It's like it's not like civility was like around or like, you know, in, in abundance, like 
did we forget the House Un-American Un Activities Committee was like a thing? It was a standing committee in the House of Representatives for like a couple decades. Like that was an uncivil place where they literally questioned the Americanness of people in front of the national audience. Like, and, and, and don't get me wrong, Gingrich absolutely contributes to this in a, in a partisan way. I think one of the things that, that he does that's really interesting and novel is that he makes this sort of a partisan trick as opposed to sort of an ideological um, divide that was animating a lot of these sort of uncivil acts and uncivil comments before. Um, but, uh, you know, Congress has always been like sort of mean. Right? <laughs> there's, a, there's always a level of meanness that's, that's inherent in those debates. I think that gets overlooked a lot. Yeah, I agree with that. And I would also add, I don't think that the Democrats use the same kind of rhetoric mm. that we're talking about now. But one of the other arguments that we make, we're not the first to make this argument, is that Democrats were not treating the Republicans especially well, particularly after the 1982 election. Um, they were, um, you know, writing the rules to make it harder for the minority to do things. They were limiting their Republicans' opportunities to amend bills. Um, they were doing, and sometimes they were doing, frankly, dirty tricks. Now, um, they often justify that as saying- You got to oh, give us an example of the dirty tricks. You can't just okay. leave it there. I mean, you can't say like, <laughs> oh, Democrats are doing dirty tricks and then move on. I mean, you got to talk about some of the sure, dirty tricks. Sure, sure. Okay. So 1987, right? The Democrats uh, under Speaker Jim Wright are trying to pass a major reconciliation bill, budget bill. And somebody in the Democratic Party or a number of members are saying, well, this, this has to pass. So why don't we use it since it's a must-pass bill as a vehicle- to reform the nation's welfare system. <laughs> and uh, in jo John Barry in his book about Wright lays this all out in great detail, but basically Wright goes along with this scheme and Republicans and some Democrats are saying, well, well, wait a minute, what is this? This is a little dodgy, but they go ahead and try to move forward with this. So the first thing that the House has to do is they have to pass a rule, which is the procedures under which this bill can be considered. And the rule fails because no Republicans will really vote for it. And some Democrats are also unhappy. Well, under the rules of the House, you can't have a vote again on that same matter until a day passes. So what uh, Democrats do, uh, Jim Wright and his aide, John Mack, come up with is, well, one day isn't necessarily a calendar day. It could also be a legislative day. In fact, it is a legislative day, which is whenever we decide a new day has happened. So the House adjourns and then reconvenes and says it's now the next day. Uh, Republicans are like, but 15 minutes went by. What's going on? Well, now it's a new day. And so now we can bring this back up to the to the floor and uh, we'll take out the welfare thing. But we're going to pass this because we have to. And Republicans are saying, you know, this is ridiculous. And so, uh, you know, long story short, they end up having another vote. And the Democrats are losing. And so the rules of the House say that the House, the vote is supposed to take place for 15 minutes plus an extra two. It doesn't, it's not a ceiling, but the norm is you don't do it for longer than 15 plus two. So Jim Wright holds the clock open uh, for another, I can't remember, 15, 20 minutes until they can get a Democrat to switch his vote. Well, now Republicans are even more upset. They said, first, you made up a new day. Now you are effectively ignoring the rules in order to win. Um, that's an example of, that was probably the most extreme example under uh, the Democrats, but it was not the only case in which Democrats said, we're a majority, we can control the, the House, we can interpret the rules as we see fit. And that really angered Republicans, and it helped push a lot of them into Gingrich's camp, because they said, look, if we're just going to be cheated all the time, why should we cooperate? Why should we compromise? Maybe Gingrich is right. Let's get more nasty. Let's not comprom compromise as much. Because what do we have to lose? Right. Yeah, I mean, another thing I like about your book is is uh, you're you know, not just showing that Gingrich has an effect on different things, but also that there are times in his story where he benefits from chances and fate, whether it's, you know, Dick Cheney isn't going to be whipped. He narrowly wins the whip election. Uh, so that redounds to his benefit. Uh, there are trends that are already underway that are, you know, being interpreted as being uh, you know, uh, his doing. Um, so kind of this combination of both, you know, he is marshalling folks behind him, but also he is very strategic at exploiting different opportunities that he has along the way. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. And I think there is, there, I, I, I definitely, one of the things I, I, um, I find interesting about this story, because it repeats itself all the time, is, as you said, the role of luck. 
you know, so, oh, well, Gingrich was elected whip. That was inevitable. The party's moving this direction. Well, the party was moving that direction, but there was no vacancy. Uh, and because Senator John Tower was supposed to be the Secretary of uh, Defense and his nomination was sunk in the Senate, uh, then President Bush needed a new person. And so he looked at Dick Cheney, who was the whip. And Dick Cheney, a lot of people in both parties said, this guy's going to be the next speaker. He's a partisan. He's a conservative, but he's an institutionalist. He's incredibly smart. He's, you know, he's going to be a really great speaker. He's out the door. So now what's going to happen next? And this is when Gingrich is able to, to step in. So there's definitely element of, of luck. And then, you know, we can talk more about the 94 election, but this is another thing where people give Gingrich tremendous credit. Oh, he brought the Republicans a majority in the House. Well, the South is realigning, right? It's becoming more conservative. This is a gradual thing that's been happening. Yeah. Um, so it was inevitable the South was going to turn Republican. It, it's not Gingrich. Gingrich did not go to the South and convince conservatives to switch their party affiliation. Um, but so that's a larger trend that Gingrich is kind of, it's like the, the idea of a wave where you're surfing it, right? So this is a political wave and Gingrich has got the surfboard. He's strategic about it. And then by riding it, people say, oh, you didn't just ride the wave, you created the wave. And then he gets the credit. So I think that's important to understand as well. Yeah, and another, and Josh mentioned that it's nice to see you kind of uh, providing a corrective that it's, you know, Gingrich didn't create instability in politics. It's also nice that you have this corrective that like Gingrich didn't create partisanship. Um, and, you know, it, it seems like he's very effective at getting people to see different things his way, which is interesting because there, there are multiple interpretations. And, you know, in a time that they're trying to get more get Republicans in as the majority party, like the Senate majority leadership uh, is extremely moderate. <laughs> you know, in the 1980s, uh, you've got, you've got like sweet old Bob Dole is there, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> but he's, he's the majority leader, you know, it's, and, and certainly Howard Baker before him, um, you know, they could potentially have, have made that argument, like, this is the way, you know. Right. It's, it's, it's uh, interesting you mentioned Bob Dole. I mean, you just call him sweet old. I think, you know, at the time he was actually seen as pretty partisan, but Gingrich. And, and younger, was, I might add. Yes. <laughs> sweet middle-aged Bob Dole. <laughs> that's right. uh, <laughs> sweet um, over 50 Bob Dole. That's right. <laughs> Late middle-aged Bob Dole. Um, <laughs> you know, he was a pretty fierce partisan in his own right, but the difference was that he was willing to compromise. He said, sure. okay, right. you know, we fight the campaign, we give the speeches, and then we sit down and work things out. Um, and Gingrich was worried from the get-go that that was going to derail his project. You can't have, he, from his view, you can't have leaders too willing to compromise with Democrats because, again, you're not differentiating the parties. It was so important to him is that voters need a choice. They need to know there's differences between the parties. And so um, what Gingrich did, not only with Bob Dole, but others, is he was willing to openly criticize other Republicans, which is an odd thing for a party entrepreneur to do, right? Like a party entrepreneur should be working with the existing leaders. He was willing to undermine Bob Dole. He was willing to criticize Ronald Reagan, uh, certainly George H.W. Bush. Um, and that made him a bit of a pariah. And other Republicans were really put off by this. But he, you know, credit, uh, you know, or not, however you want to think it was a good thing or bad thing. He felt that you weren't going to win if you went along with the status quo. You had to speak up and say the party is being misled and I'm willing to call them out on it. Um, and, you know, eventually his view became the dominant view of the party. So uh, that that willingness to criticize your own party leaders is a, a particular trait Gingrich had, uh, that risk taking that is very unusual. One thing that I wanted to ask you about in particular is sort of like, for lack of a better word, uh, Gingrich's recruitment of sort of party partisan activists in the in, in his mold right how much do you believe like that Gingrich was like a focal point where these people were sort of like rallying around and he was creating or manifesting or supporting them and how much of this is sort of just a broader environmental change that's occurring I mean with like the conservative movement goes back into the 70s for a large point in time like Gingrich is not the first one to talk about how we need less uh, less compromise. He's not the first one to talk about how we need to be more partisan and how we need to differentiate. I mean, this goes back to, you know, the 1972 presidential election, some of these things, right? Um, so what, what's your sort of take on how much of how much of this sort of like shift in Republican behavior 
is a function of Gingrich's presence within the chamber um, versus how much of this is just sort of like broader environmental factors coming to fruition at a time when Gingrich is really also capitalizing along this, uh, on, the, on the same sort of opportunities or environment. Right. That's a good question. So, you know, we talk, as I mentioned earlier, there's a persuasion side and there's a recruitment side. So it's getting people who are in the chamber to see that this is the way to do politics. And it's also convincing folks to run in the first place who have that view. Um, I would say with the former, with the convincing people who were there, um, Gingrich was was extremely important because a lot of members, whether they were already inclined to take that kind of view of politics or not, um, they needed a figure, right? You need somebody who's like, yep, you're absolutely right. And here's how we're going to do it. And here's our plan. And Gingrich was for many years playing that role. He was effectively the person in the Republican conference who was doing that for, for many years. So, uh, so that was very important. The recruitment is interesting because, you know, um, in the late 80s, mid to late 80s, Gingrich had acquired this organization called GOPAC, which had been formed by then Governor uh, Pete DuPont of Delaware, designed to help Republicans win state legislatures. And Gingrich, basically, DuPont gave it to Gingrich, and Gingrich turned it into one that focused on getting people to run for Congress and who shared his, you know, his view. He wanted people elected, but he also wanted folks who had the same message, who would differentiate with Democrats, who were not afraid to be aggressive and attack Democrats on the campaign trail. So that was an important tool for him. But we don't, you know, we don't, it, it, this would be a book in of itself to actually trace his exact contributions. So it's a bit speculative. So that was important, but uh, there were folks like that getting elected before Gingrich had GOPAC. And one of the reasons that folks like that were getting elected was because of Ronald Reagan. They were inspired by Reagan. He said, this is a true conservative who's in the White House. I want to get involved in politics. And so you had folks getting elected, not so much in 82, but in 84 and 86, who were saying, you know, I'm going to be a conservative. I'm going to, you know, be aggressive. I'm not going to sit and compromise. Um, sometimes they got help from Gingrich. Uh, a good example of this would be Dick Armey, who was elected in, I believe, 1984. Um, but Armey was already a, a fairly cantankerous person, right? He believed in free enterprise, deeply distrustful of government. So it's not just Gingrich who's saying, hey, Dick Armey, you should run. And it's not just Gingrich saying, Dick Armey, you should share these views. But if there hadn't been a Gingrich, what would someone like a Dick Armey do when they get to Congress? So, um, so Gingrich plays an important role, I would say, more so with the persuasion and organization within Congress of these folks, and less so, but not zero uh, influence on the recruitment side. Right. I mean, it's easy to forget that many of Gingrich's lieutenants that came up were actually elected before he was, right? So like a couple of your Bob Livingston, Bob Walker, I mean, they only had like a couple of years on Gingrich, but clearly, I mean, they were, they were doing their own brand of, of, of mischief in the House of Representatives. And it's interesting to see like Gingrich clearly had an influence on them and how they approached the floor and the chamber, generally speaking. But um, it is interesting that we give Gingrich so much credit when it comes to changing the tenor of Congress, when like a lot of his lieutenants who were there like before him were, were also doing the same sort of thing. Absolutely. And we talk about that, too, in the book, that Gingrich could not have succeeded without the help of some of these folks. Right. So, you know, in 1982, after the 1982 election, Gingrich forms this caucus, the Conservative Opportunity Society, which is a way for these like-minded folks to be organized and to have, a, you know, a, a basically a strategy and a set of tactics. So Gingrich gets credit for creating that, but he needed folks to join, right? He needed a dozen or so to start with, including folks like Bob Walker, who was a master of floor procedure. So, you know, Gingrich might say, let's cause mischief on the floor, but he wouldn't know how to do that. But Bob Walker knows how to do that. Um, and then there are other folks in the COS that are also like policy experts or they're experts with the media. And so they're together collectively helping to achieve this goal, which is Gingrich's, but also theirs, which is a Republican majority through particular tactics. Yeah, I love the description, um, not just of how he's able to kind of strategically use some of his lieutenants, uh, but also just of <laughs> kind of the way that he thinks throughout the book. And you've got all these quotes from all these different political actors being like, this guy's in love with ideas and they're all over the place. And a lot of them are bad. And he sends these little Newt Grahams. And, um, you know, besides enjoying this kind of larger, you know, uh, rich description of the guy, 
Um, I think it's interesting that you are specifically identifying him early on as not being a legislative entrepreneur. In fact, identifying that he, uh, you know, to be sure has a million ideas, but is introducing far less legislation and is not really, you know, riding a certain kind of very specific ideological train, if it can be even called that uh, throughout the, the book uh, or uh, throughout his time. Um, you know, I wonder to what extent you think that, you know, his not being a legislative entrepreneur helped him in his particular path. Well, I think by not being a legislative, you're, so you're asking how not being a legislative entrepreneur actually helped him? Yeah, because he is is more focused on, you know, he he's not delineating a specific policy agenda mm -hmm. and he's much better at kind of adeptly adeptly riding different waves in Congress and exploiting them. Sure. So I think it I think it helped in uh, at least a couple of ways. One of the ways that it helped was that he didn't feel any personal stake in um, Congress being legislatively productive and in particular uh, him himself being legislatively productive. You know, there were there were members early on, especially who would look at Gingrich and say, well, that's all well and good to differentiate ourselves, but I'm a, I'm a ranking member on a subcommittee. I, I, I want to legislate. I came here to legislate. So I want to, I don't want to, you know, tick off the chair or the speaker because then I can't legislate. So it's important to me to do that. Whereas Gingrich, you know, he's like, well, what are you going to do to me? I don't really, <laughs> really have that as an agenda. And so he was more able to, you know, pursue this, uh, this tactic of being um, and strategy really of being um, aggressive, assertive, you know, not cooperating with Democrats. I think the other way it helped him is that um, it gave him a, a view of legislating, which I don't think is a good one, but was helpful to him, which is legislating as pure position taking or symbolism. So, you know, a real legislator ideally looks at the status quo, figures out what the problems are, comes up with possible solutions, um, determines what's politically doable, is willing to compromise, and then you get an end result. But Gingrich sees legislating as agenda setting, really, which is this is this is what we do because it's what voters want us to do and or it makes the other party look bad. So we're going to, for example, they did this in early 19, 1984, him and some COS members. You go to the floor and say, I want to debate a constitutional amendment to have a balanced budget. Is this a good idea? Is this a way to get it? No, not particularly. But if that's your, if you think about it as something that makes the Democrats look bad and you look good, then you pursue that. And again, I don't think this is good. I don't think that's the right way to, to view your job in Congress. But if it does get you votes, uh, if it does make your party a majority party, um, you know, then I suppose you could say that that's, that's an advantage of not being a legislator. To what extent do you think that is part of his legacy as well? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I think uh, the, you know, I think if anything would be a legacy, it would be doing that in a campaign year as an agenda. So the contract with America in 1994, uh, you know, he he was trying that earlier. He tried that in 1979. He tried that um, I think it was in 1981 or 82 with this like Republican budget plan. Like this is what the Republicans will do. That didn't really get a lot of attention. It didn't really do much. Um, and he tried a contract-like event in 1980, uh, which not many people know about. And he tried to get Reagan to come and say, vote for us as a, as a unity ticket. And Reagan's like, I'll show up, but I'm not giving any specifics because that's stupid. So the whole thing was, was not well covered. It was kind of, you know, empty. Um, but since that 1994 election, uh, you had for about 10, 15 years, every time every minority party would come up with their contract. And now Republicans are doing it again with their commitment to America. Um, there's no real evidence that does anything, by the way. Um, another myth that these things get you majority. Um, actually, the contract with America when it was released in September, most Americans never heard of it. And there were already polls from January showing that folks were going to vote Republican. So it doesn't really do much electorally, but it, it does give um, this, uh, it does create this norm that you do this because voters want to know what you're going to do. And I will say this, um, there's problems with doing it. But on the other hand, uh, and I've written about this elsewhere, it does force parties to think 
to some degree about what would they do right? to have some kind of positive agenda. It may not be a good agenda, but at least it's an agenda as opposed to just vote for us because the other guys are corrupt. Right? You get, you know, you, you, it gives them at least a sense of a feeling of responsibility to voters that they need to pass bills if they take power. Although the corruption thing was also part of their campaign against the Democrats. Yes, it was. It has <laughs> been years putting Democrats <laughs> in, the, in the corruption crosshairs. Oh, yeah, Gingrich taught, he loved that word, corrupt, corrupt, corruption. And it was always over the top, right? Like Jim Wright, Speaker Jim Wright is the most corrupt speaker we've had in a century. Or there's corruption everywhere, corruption, corruption. And, you know, that is a legacy, I suppose. We see Democrat Republicans now saying that, uh, you know, corruption, corruption, corruption. Um, yeah, don't get me wrong. It wasn't like Gingrich said, if we just have a an agenda that people like, we will win. I mean, he also was a big advocate of taking down other members for particularly for corruption. He loved that abuse of power. And, and you know, sometimes he was right. I mean, sometimes he was actually attacking folks who had done corrupt or at least immoral things. But for Gingrich, it was also you've got to make Democrats, you got to make voters think the party, the other party is corrupt, not just individual members, but the whole shebang, the whole party is corrupt. Um, and that kind of rhetoric is, is I don't think it's helpful to our body politic to talk that way, but we're seeing it today. So it's certainly something that, you know, members or at least activists think will uh, will work. One of the things that Gingrich, uh, well, can you talk a little bit about Gingrich as a speaker? I mean, we, we talked a, a good bit about his sort of like rise and his influence on politics, generally speaking, which all like predates his speakership in many ways. And then he becomes speaker and actually implementing some of these things becomes one, a challenge and two, a, a bit trickier than his his original vision um, sort of laid out. Can you talk a little bit about his four years uh, while at the top? Sure. So we have two chapters dedicated to Gingrich's speakership and um we they're basically divided into this first two years as speaker and his second two years as speaker. Um, really, the um, the first four to eight months, maybe of his speakership, maybe ten. Uh, he's really incredibly powerful. Um, if he had just left the house in April of 1995, he would probably go down in history as one of the most effective speakers in uh, modern congressional history because. The, the contract is not just a promise to voters, it's a blueprint, and they follow that blueprint. They're, they're voting on bills over 100 days at an incredible pace, a huge number of bills. And not many become law, but this productivity of the House, the sense that the Speaker is really the center of not just the House, but of government, uh, is, is, is taking place. You know, the President is saying, I'm still relevant. You know, Bill Clinton, I'm still relevant. You never, if you have to say that, then you're not relevant. Uh, the Senate is kind of waiting to see what the House does. So it's a really remarkable period. And Gingrich, uh, and we're not the only ones to make this argument, uh, gets a lot of credit for this. His, he's got an agenda. He's making members stick to it. Sometimes other Republicans are saying, I don't know if this is going to pass. I don't think this is a good idea. Gingrich is saying, no, this is what we're going to do. This is what we were vote elected to do. Um, so he's really driving the train. And then after the contract, they decide our next big battle is going to be over... Um, over Medicare, over healthcare. And um, this is just a huge lift because this is a program that's central to the Democratic Party's platform. And you do have a Democrat in the White House. And you also have, um, speaking of kind of what, you know, the folks who are getting elected, this huge freshman class in 1994 who are true believers. Many of them are true believers. Like, yes, Gingrich, he's the Messiah. We've got to take down government. We're, they're corrupt. We're going to do the and Gingrich can't really control these folks. Um, and so you end up with this pair of shutdowns, with this conflict between the Republicans in the House and Senate on one side and Clinton on the other, um, vetoing these budget bills that he says are going to gut the social welfare system. And um, shutdowns are just a terrible strategy. And we can talk about this later, but Gingrich just the other day was quoted as saying, yeah, I think Republicans should shut down the government over immigration. I'm like, do not listen to New Gingrich about shutdown policy, please. This is this is the wrong person uh, who on tactics of that kind, because it turns Americans off. They go against Gingrich and um, support Clinton. And really, from that point on, Gingrich is, is is a tarnished speaker because he's effectively he effectively gave up and surrendered to Democrats, not uh, not entirely, but effectively. That's the spin. 
And so from that point on, and we can talk more about what happens over the next three years, but he really uh, proves himself to be a, a much less effective speaker than he had in his first eight to 10 months. Well, he also just has such a talent for being in the minority, um, you know, and once you have to take, you know, control of what's actually happening, it's a much more difficult position. Um, I think we've seen this with a lot of different uh, party entrepreneurs. Um, but it, it's also just interesting to kind of juxtapose the, the two, like, to the big budget battles, whether that, you know, 1990 and the shutdown of 95, 96, he throws a complete wrench into the works in 1990, uh, which you describe very nicely in your book. Um, you know, something I remember from doing uh, archival research in the, in the Bush library is that they never saw it coming. They thought the guy who was gonna be a problem was Vin Weber. Like they, <laughs> They're all worried that like Ben was going to get them and it's new. It's new. And like, nobody sees it coming. They're like totally stabbed in the back. Um, but this ends up like redounding to, you know, his, his benefit as a, you know, you know taking on uh, powers bigger than him and making himself into a bigger deal. And it does not work out that way <laughs> in 95, 96. No, it does not. <clears throat> so another example of talking earlier about his willingness to criticize are the Republicans. I mean, you know, taking taking basically calling uh, a Republican president, um, basically saying you don't understand, uh, you know, your budget plan is a disaster. It's it's against the party and I'm willing to openly oppose it and and organize against it. Um, you know, this apostasy, you know, is, is, is just you don't do that. Right. But he's willing to do it. And you're right. He actually rallies other conservatives saying, hooray for Newt Gingrich. Um, but this, you know, once you're in the, I think you're absolutely right. Once you're in the majority, you've got all these responsibilities. You can't just say no, you've got to say no and, or yes, and, or something. And, um, it's really hard to be a speaker of the house because you have all these responsibilities and your party might be with you for a little while as they were with Gingrich. Cause Hey, he brought us a majority, whatever he wants, he gets, but after a while that wears off. And then there's real serious questions about what should we spend on Medicare? What, how do we deal with the deficit and differences within your party? And he has a hard time navigating those. He also, you know, from a, from a more of a tactical or organizational perspective, as you mentioned, Vin Weber, um, you know, Weber is one of his allies at the time, this Republican from Minnesota, but he's not in Congress uh, when the Republicans win the House. And one of the things that Weber was doing, it was really important, was keeping Gingrich on track. Gingrich, as you said, is a man with a thousand ideas, and most of them aren't that good. Um, he's not hes not very organized. And that's okay if you've got someone who can help you. And Weber was would sort of say in conservative opportunity society meetings, yeah, Gingrich, okay, that's good. But we already were talking about this other thing. So let's focus on this first, or let's prioritize. Um, without Weber, Gingrich doesn't have that. And, um, and so what's happening to him, particularly after the shutdown, is he doesn't have a person to keep him focused. And he start, things start kind of getting scattershot. And he'll say one thing to the party, and then we're going to do this. And then he'd say the opposite the next day. Uh, or he'd say things like, okay, so maybe let's just put aside tax cuts and we can focus on something else. The Republicans are like, what do you mean? I thought we were the, what are you talking about? So that lack of, a, of help with keeping him focused proved to be a really big problem. And so, yeah, for anyone when they're in Congress, but especially if you're in a leadership position, you've got to have that organizational ability or someone to help you organize. One of the uh, things that I'd like you to speak about a little bit is, is, is Gingrich gets sort of like unique credit for ruining the committee system in Congress. Right? <laughs> um, he, he gets rid of some committees. I mean, just completely axes the D.C. committee um, and a couple others. Uh, he uh, guts a lot of the staff. Uh, on committees, cuts back um, the, the size of the allotments that that, uh, that committee get for staff, um, kind of, and he's been charged with basically reducing the capacity of the House. Like, how much of that do you think uh, sort of fits the bill uh, versus how much of that is a little overblown? Well, he does, he does play a really important part in those early months after the 1904 election of figuring out how are we going to organize the House. He's not the only one, and actually the ultimate plan for what committees to get rid of and merge is some, if I recall correctly, somewhat watered down. There were yep. even more bold plans that were circulating. Um, 
there, you know, on the one hand, you could say that this plan, these plans to kind of, you know, change the committee system in the House were to kind of get rid of committees that weren't necessary or to streamline the process. Um, I can't remember if fisheries was still a committee at that time. There were some committees that it's like, yeah, yeah, probably don't need that one, right? You could probably merge it with something else. Um, but uh, but it, but it, there was definitely a concern on Gingrich's part that committees had too much power and that that could be a source, a rival, a rival um, or basically a rival to him and his ability to lead. And that's not the reason to get rid of committees because then what you have is centralized leadership, which we have today in the House, um, but you don't have, you know, committees serve so many important purposes. They're gathering information, they're they're locate, they're the centers of, of expertise, and they are opportunities for members to feel like I can do something, I can play a role. And by weakening that committee system and and even doing things like giving term limits on committee chairs, although that predated uh the 1994 election. Republicans had adopted that two years before. But those kinds of things, um, to the extent Gingrich was responsible, I think were uh were harmful. Um, again, not everything was something he did. Uh, not everything had um, was just him or had started some had started beforehand. Um, and I think you know part of the reason for that, depending on why they did it, was not just to um, centralize power, but also to show voters, hey, we care about spending, so we'll cut our own budget first, which yeah, symbolically, yes, but is incredibly short-sighted. I mean, Look, Matt, everybody pay... knows cutting 0.4% of the federal budget is a huge, <laughs> huge, big deal, right? And you take that chunk of money, you shrink it down like point, a couple hundred thousand million dollars, and you're good. So many, people, so, many pe did. so many people voted for Republicans because they were tired of the Merchant Marine Committee, you know? <laughs> Um, but it's it's ridiculous, right? Like if you're saying at the same time, you're saying both, we've got to cut, I got to show you that we're, we'll take the hit. But at the same time say, well, we're also going to be running a conservative, uh, you know, transformation of society. Well, how are you going to do it with fewer staff, with weaker committees? You know, it was just, it was very short-sighted. Well, and, and to add to that, not just the expertise within the committee system, but the legislative service organizations, um, you know, particularly folks like OTA. Um, is an odd uh, way of undercutting your your own congressional capacity, particularly for someone who wants to talk about saving, you know, Western civilization all the time. Um, and who loves technology. I mean, yeah. he, was, he was always a OTA big fan is of technology. the Office of Technology Assessment, correct? Yes. yes. Sorry, just for for listeners who are not familiar yes. with the yes. incredibly <laughs> legislative branch lingo. I, I remember that debate. I was working on the Hill at the time, and I remember, you know, people saying, OTA does this and that, and the Republicans are like, bah, it's a waste of money. Um, and now people are looking back and saying, gosh, if there had been an OTA, what could have Congress done about vaccine research, um, social media technology, AI, like all these things that if anyone would have foreseen it, it would have been Gingrich because he loved futurists, he loved looking ahead. And then again, sort of, well, this thing is a waste of money. It's a bunch of liberals, whatever, get rid of it. It's, it's short-sighted. I think that's one of the things that the modernization, the Select Committee on Modernization has been focusing on a lot. It's like how to reincorporate some of the things, the good parts of OTA um, <laughs> and ditching some of the spots where OTA was, was not seen as sufficient. Uh, for the needs of the institution, but um, it is interesting that like a lot of those 1990s decisions are are coming are coming back to haunt us, right? As, as we as people look to reform the institution. Yeah, and you have senators who are like, um, "How do you make any money on Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg?" Right. Uh, I just see a lot of faces in this book thing. I don't really understand this. <laughs> I will. I will say. I will give Gingrich and fellow Republicans credit for one thing that they did after the 1994 election and streamlining that I think was really good, which is they did look at how the House operated. They looked at its operating budget. They looked at how money was spent. And I can tell you from personal experience, when I was on the Hill, things were really loosey goosey before the 1994 election. If you wanted something and you were friends with the chair of the House Administration Committee, you could get it. Right. You know, after the 94 election, before Republicans took over, there were folks in leadership saying, what do you want? This is your last chance. You want chairs? You want a desk? You want, I'm like, who's paying for the, who's keeping, no, no, we just get you what you want. And then Gingrich comes in and he has like Price Waterhouse do this audit. And they're like, this is a disaster. This is a total mess. You know, you've, you have, in, you have inputs and you have outputs. You know, what are you spending? Do you have the money for it? 
And I think that that was, you know, that rationalization of the budget process internal to the House and the way it governed, the way it operated, um, it badly needed to be fixed. It was 40 years of Democrats in control. They didn't have, they had sort of lost any sense of accountability. So I think that was a reform that did a lot of good to for Congress. Sure. And, and of course, with, you know, all of the reforms to congressional capacity writ large, we, it's also notable that folks don't reverse them after, you know, it's these, so there is accountability to be had there as well. Um, these, these things are, are quite sticky, um, uh, you know, um, uh, I wanted to, um, to, to kind of say just a kind of a quick word about his kind of wider, like Western civilization aims um, and, you know, just give a little bit more kind of texture to that. Um, you know, something I, you know, I was like flipping through some of my um, archival documents from going to his papers in, in West Georgia, um, thinking I'd find something to bring up. And of course, like I find not just a random closet quote, but like one that's like really, you know, everyone says that war is politics by other, other means, but he wants to quote like really specific passages the entire time. <laughs> um, where, where does this kind of grand desire to save Western civilization come from? And, you know, like how, how does he conceptualize this? This, this makes him kind of unusual for, for a political actor. We don't talk too much about his time before he was elected to Congress. So there's definitely things there that are shaping his life from an early age, um, he is, uh, you know, he, he takes a trip to Europe um, and he's, uh, his uh, parents take him, um, his mother and stepdad, I guess, take him to um, one of the World War I battle fields. And he makes the case, which is plausible, that, you know, this profoundly shapes his view that, you know, you can have, uh, you know, if, if politics goes awry, you can have a total disaster. Um, he is uh, also, you know, he's trained as an historian and he has his PhD in history and he's teaching history before he runs for Congress. Another unusual thing for someone with a PhD to, to run for Congress and get elected. Um, and so he he's, he's really interested in history. He's interested in historical figures. He ascribes to this great man theory of history that uh, history is shaped by powerful individuals, Genghis Khan, Napoleon, Hitler, etc. Um, and for whatever reason, he not only finds that appealing, but I think one can make the argument that he wonders if he could also play one of those, be one of those figures, those great man figures. And we talk, we do say a little bit in the book about that because this is a this is just a classic debate of whether history is shaped by individuals or by larger forces. And we say in the book, we're not going to answer that question because that's a question that will never really be definitively answered. But importantly, from Gingrich's perspective, he thinks that he can be one of those figures. And so part of that is getting elected to Congress and getting Republicans a majority, but part of it is this societal transformation. Um, I, we have one picture in the book. There were dozens and dozens of these in his archives of these diagrams where he's, you know, he's got football shaped lines. He's got circles with circles within circles. And they have, you know, they talk about things like traditional values and free market and uh, westernization and corruption is all this stuff. Um, which I don't, I can't quite understand, but I think they tell us about like his, he wants to like encapsulate everything, put everything into this giant schematic and he would play a part in bringing these things about. We may not know if it's individuals or the context, but we can know that that is a terrifying set of leaders to aspire to. Napoleon Genghis Khan. It's just like, oh, oh man. <laughs> You know, be careful, be, be careful what you wish for. Yeah, no, I mean, kind of the whole agency structure debate is, you know, something that that always ends up getting, uh, you know, getting brought up in in all of my classes, but is, is also, you know, one of the, the more kind of important uh, lenses through which to see like any leader, I suppose. Um, so um, now I, realize that unfortunately we are uh, not on kind of commute time the way that I used to envision of our podcast as being kind of like 45 minutes, 
uh, to an hour of like bad traffic now that we're all work from home. <laughs> but I was wondering if like, you know, uh, you know, Josh and I would have just like kind of one, one final question to, to wrap things up. And Josh, why don't you go first? Um, I, I don't have one right now. <laughs> I asked my question. That's fine. <laughs> gotcha. I mean, what do you think of Gingrich's like lasting importance for the Republican Party uh, development is? Uh, <clears throat> well, I think he himself is still trying to get involved and does get involved in Republican Party politics. He's you know, he's, not, he's the opposite of John Boehner. John Boehner leaves the house. like, I'm going to go fix my motorcycle and drink Merlot. I'm out of here. Uh, Gingrich, he's, he sets up his own consulting firm. He's got, he's, he's constantly, you know, he's constantly in the news. He's advising other Republicans. You know, he's advising the Republicans now in the house about their commitment to America, et cetera. Um, so he's still kind of interjecting himself. I don't know how much influence he has doing that. There is a way in which some Republicans, I think, say, okay, yeah, that was ancient history, and then you ran for president, didn't do very well. Um, but he's still a guy with tremendous energy and tremendous ideas, and he still wants the Republicans to win. So, um, you know, to that extent, and I would add, we can, you know, this is for a longer conversation another time, but he does al ally himself with Trump. He writes the first biography of Trump. He's speaking up for Trump. So he's he's very good at kind of figuring out with his political antenna where things are going, kind of going in that direction. So I think as a person, he is still trying to influence the party. Um, but as, as I mentioned earlier, some of the bigger things that he did, um, you know, the 1994 election, connecting that with the contract with America, uh, connecting that with tactics and strategies that um, are confrontational. Those things are a lasting legacy uh, for Gingrich and not just for the Republican Party, but for the way Congress operates today. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think that's a, a, a good note for us to, to end on as, as we're uh, just days away from the midterms. <laughs> um, thinking about the thinking about the future. Um, so a giant thank you uh, from both of us here at GAI uh, for coming on the podcast uh, with us again. Um, delighted to have you in the in the multiples club, I suppose I should be calling it. Um, so very lucky, lucky to have you. Uh, folks, this is a great book. You should go check it out. Um, you know, it's a, you know, very, you know, we've got a, an audience of a lot of federal employees and lots of different folks. So this is super re readable, very engaging, uh, highly recommended to everybody. Um, a big thank you from me and Josh. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Josh.